series. Uh, maybe I'll just start again in chapter one and we'll just make our way through whenever there's a break. Uh, I think it was beneficial for us when we went through it. Uh, but it's also good for us to be reminded of what, what we believe, what our doctrine is, and to be reminded of um, what the scriptures say uh, in a logical fashion. And so tonight I thought we would look at chapter 20 of our confession uh, of the gospel and of the extent of the grace thereof. And so this isn't so much a definition of the gospel, but it's all about the spread of the gospel. It's all about the advancement of the gospel. And so no one can say that Calvinists are anti-evangelism or anti-missions because we have a whole chapter uh, that deals with the advancement of the kingdom. So uh, four chapters, uh, sorry, four paragraphs of chapter 20. I'll read all four. We'll look at all four tonight. And I'll begin reading at verse 1. London Baptist Confession, chapter 20, paragraphs 1 through 4. The covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. This promise is of Christ and salvation by him, is revealed only by the word of God. Neither do the works of creation or providence with the light of nature make discovery of Christ or of grace by him, so much as in a general or obscure way, much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise of the gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith or repentance. The revelation of the gospel unto sinners, made in diverse times and by sundry parts, with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein, as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted, is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God, not being annexed by virtue of any promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities, by virtue of common light received without it, which none ever did make or can do so. And therefore in all ages the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent or straightening of it in great variety, according to the counsel of the will of God. Although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing Christ in saving grace, and, and is, as such, abundantly sufficient thereunto, yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened, or regenerated, there is moreover necessary an effectual, insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul, for the producing in them a new spiritual life, without which no other means will affect their conversion, Unto God, amen. Well, as we consider the confession, it's good to be reminded about where we are in the confession. Uh, chapter 20 ends a long discussion about covenants. Uh, Reformed theology is covenant theology. Everything we do in life is covenantal. And certainly when it comes to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, we are saved by virtue of the covenant of grace, by being in the covenant of grace, by being in that new covenant. And so chapters 7 through 20 deal with that new covenant and all that is related to it. So chapter 7 gives us the definition. Chapter 8 gives us the mediator. Chapter 9, which is free will, gives us the setting. 
Chapters 10 through 13 give us the blessings. Chapters 14 through 18 give us the graces. Chapter 19 gives us covenant law. Chapter 19, 6, we're not, no longer under a covenant of works, which will be important uh, for our discussion tonight. But chapter 20 then deals with covenant advancement. So we are, we are all for uh, evangelism and missions. And so there are quite a few problems and misnomers uh, that we can see and that we can draw out in light of what we see in chapter 20. And the pro- one problem that they are dealing with and that they have in their sights in chapter 20 is the problem of naturalism, the problem of Pelagianism. What that means is that the Pelagianism, naturalism teaches that man has a natural, in his original state, in his sinful state, has a natural ability to earn salvation. We teach that only salvation is supernatural. It is a supernatural work where God changes the hearts and lives of his people. So naturalism, man cannot be saved uh, by his own natural law-keeping, so to speak. And then there is another problem that has arisen today, and is a problem that perhaps a lot of evangelicals would hold to, and that's the idea of inclusivism. What inclusivism teaches is that salvation can come through those who seek after God in their own culture. They seek after God in their own religion. They are sincerely uh, pining after God and seeking him in that way. And the example would be the heathen in the bush. When you talk about the need for supernat- uh, the gospel, when we talk about the need for that supernatural work, when we talk about that need for the gospel presentation, a lot of people are like, well, what about the heathen in the bush who's never heard of the gospel? Well, as we're going to see tonight, it's just too bad. As we're going to see tonight... That man who uh, is inexcusable before God the Creator. And the only way to be saved is the working in them by the Spirit with that gospel presentation. We're going to see the sovereign work of God when it comes to this gospel presentation. And so the misnomer uh, is that those who teach predestination, which we teach, that God before the foundation of the world chose to save a great multitude that no man can number... That predestination means there is no evangelism. Well, there are hyper-Calvinists, certainly, who teach that there is no need to offer the gospel. They teach, certainly, that there's no need to share the gospel with others, whereas a true Calvinist does not believe that very thing. In fact, the Reformed, and especially our forefathers, especially particular Baptists, were key figures in missions, were key figures especially in putting world missions on the map. And so we are all for the advancement of the gospel. And certainly we see that in chapter 20, where we see that the gospel advances to the ends of the earth through the presentation of it and primarily the Holy Spirit accompanying it. So there is this external presenting, there is this word that goes forth, but then there is that internal working Uh, by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the hearers, in the hearts of the elect. But the means is that the external means, the outward means, is that gospel presentation. So we're all for the advancement, the gospel, and of the extent of the grace thereof. So we'll look at this gospel advancement under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the necessity of the gospel in paragraph one. Secondly, we'll see the revelation of the gospel in paragraphs 2 and 3. And lastly, we'll see the super 
abundant or super, uh, sorry, I got it wrong there, supernatural character of the gospel in paragraph four. Supernatural character of the gospel in paragraph four. So necessity, revelation, and supernatural character. So let's first look at the necessity of the gospel in paragraph one. And some historical context is important. When we consider our confession in light of what's called the Savoy Declaration, that was the confession, that was the, uh, the, the, the summary of doctrine for the independents, for the Congregationalists uh, in England around the same time as our particular Baptist forefathers. And we differ from them in that we don't believe in baptizing babies. They still believed in baptizing babies, but they had a congregational view of polity. So theirs was the Savoy Declaration. And then what preceded that was what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that's what the Presbyterians, that was their confession of faith. Remember, a creed is what ought to be believed, or what must be believed. A confession is what ought to be believed. And so certainly within the confession, there are creeds, things that must be believed. But a confession also includes things that ought to be believed. It's just a helpful summary for us to make sure that we don't go off the rails uh, it's like gutters when you go bowling. That's what creeds and confessions are for. To make sure that as we read our Bibles, we don't go this way too far or that way too far. That's what the confessions help us with. They're not on par with Scripture, but they help us with respect to the summary of what Scripture says. So the Presbyterians and their polity, which is different from Congregational, they had the Westminster Confession. The Savoy is for the Congregationalists and us as Baptists. Uh, I guess I put myself with those men back way back, but the particular Baptists have the London Baptist Confession. But the Westminster did not have chapter 20. It's not as though they were against the advancement of the gospel, but uh, it was, chapter 20 was added by the Congregationalists for two reasons. And one reason, the first reason, is that there was this increase in belief of salvation through general revelation. That is, man does not need to hear the gospel. Man just in his natural state, man just doing his thing, man just keeping the law, man doing his own way, God will save them through that. Well, that's works salvation. That is works-based salvation. Whereas we recognize it's grace-based salvation. It's the work of somebody else and the gift that is given to us. So there's this increased uh, desire, increased propagation of general revelation uh, as the means of salvation or as a means of salvation uh, that is growing at this time. And then the second reason is the claim that the independents, the Congregationalists, were anti-missions. Where have we heard? <laughs> Maybe not quite like that, but how often have we heard that Calvinists are anti-missions? Well, again, chapter 20 teaches us the very thing that we are, that we are very much for it. So again, it's not a definition but it's for the advancement. What does it mean to advance uh, the gospel to the ends of the earth? And it's an explanation for the reason the gospel has reached places it has, but also an explanation for the reason it hasn't reached other places. But it in no way means that the independents were anti-missions. And so uh, paragraph one, we do see its necessity because of the covenant of works that was broken. This is a mirror to what we see in chapter 7. This is a mirror to what we see, I've already seen throughout the confession already. And so we see the explicit reference to the covenant of works in paragraph 1. Now, if you remember, 
When we've talked about the covenant works, does anybody remember where it is in the scriptures? Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Bonus points. Where else is it? Hosea. Hosea 6. That's right. And uh, the, the prophet very much compares how Israel broke the covenant like the covenant that God made with Adam. So God entered into a covenant of works with Adam, wherein life is held out. Eternal life is held out. We see this in Genesis 2, as uh, was mentioned already. And then we see the breaking of it in Genesis chapter 3. But we see the stipulation. It is, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see the sanction, the blessing or the curse. If you eat it, you shall die. And so what happens, Adam eats from it, and he brings death into uh, this world. So the reason it's included here is to highlight the historical cause and also the need then for the gospel of salvation. So paragraph one, the covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life. There was the implication that life was held out if Adam had done what God had said. If Adam had kept the law, if Adam had kept that precept by not eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if he had spread God's glory to the ends of the earth, life would have been given unto him. But Adam broke that. Adam failed, and so he brought death into this world. And because of that, there really is no way of salvation outside of Christ. There really is no work salvation. Adam had to do it. He failed, and what happens? Death has come into the world. So it's unprofitable unto life. We see the curse of it throughout the world today. We see the curse of it throughout the ages. The curse that Adam brought into this world. So there's the debt of sin. There's the debt of obedience required. Man is unable to keep that, and so we need somebody else to do that. And so, again, there's wonderful contrast that is going on here. We see the covenant of works broken. It's unprofitable unto life. But then God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ. God was pleased to give a champion. God was pleased to proclaim the gospel all the way back where? Genesis 3.15, where the first gospel is proclaimed. We see that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so God was pleased to give this forth. And just some historical comparison, uh, in the Savoy, the, the Baptists changed things just a little bit. In the Savoy, it says, God was pleased to give unto the elect Whereas the Baptists say it was, God was pleased to give forth. Obviously, the Baptists believe that it will only be effectual in the elect, uh, but they also highlight the importance of the free offer of the gospel. That is, we call all to believe upon Christ Jesus, because we can't see into their hearts. We weren't there in eternity past. We do not know who the elect are, but God is pleased to call them and save them. So we are all for this free offer that God is pleased to save sinners in Christ Jesus. So we're all for that presentation that sinners must come and believe. And it's very clear that the Baptists were cognizant of that by that subtle change from the Savoy uh, into uh, our Baptist confession. So God was pleased to give forth this promise of Christ. The seed of the woman. So there it is, Genesis 3.15.
which is what we see in chapter 7, paragraph 3, talking about the revelation of the gospel, highlighting that the gospel is the same throughout all the ages. Salvation has always been by way of Christ, Christ to come, and the Christ who has come. Uh, there, is, there are not differing salvations in the old and the new, but the same salvation. And so uh, they, they go on to say the seed of the woman as the means, as the means of calling the elect. Again, that gospel presentation of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. When we saw saving faith uh, uh, at Christmas time, we see that it's spirit wrought with the word. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit, so that internal working, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by that presentation of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. So the external Word goes forth, and then the, the Holy Spirit works internally to save sinners. But we need this gospel because man uh, is in sin, because of what Adam did. So thanks be to God for this gospel. God begets faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are a gift. And we see in this promise the gospel as the substance of it. So we're all for the substance of the gospel being present in the Old Testament. And it is present by way of the promises. We have no problem with the language of substance. Uh, we're just against the idea that the Old Covenant is the covenant of grace, or the Abrahamic Covenant is the covenant of grace in their terms, but the promises that are there, we see the substance that, are, that is present. And so, uh, just getting into some covenant theology here, uh, the way in which Pado-Baptists argue for the baptism of their children is because they say the Abrahamic Covenant is the covenant of grace, and they say the New Covenant is the covenant of grace. And so we see circumcision was for Abraham and his seed. And then they say in the new covenant, because they're both the covenant of grace, just packaged differently, that then uh, believers and their seed can be baptized. Whereas Baptists are different. We don't say the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. Because what are the stipulation or what is the, the terms? God said to Abraham, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was between God and Abraham. And God fulfills that promise, but in that promise, not in the terms, but in the promise, the gospel is proclaimed. So the substance of it is present and revealed. Revealed is very important, especially with what we're going to see in paragraph 2. It was God who revealed it because it is special revelation and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. It's how God calls the elect. It's by way of preaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Effectual calling. Obviously, they talked about that in chapter 10. It's a work of the spirit in the hearts and lives of, the, of God's people. But they're called forth by that blessed gospel. So we need this gospel because man uh, uh, Adam broke the covenant of works and made that covenant of works unprofitable unto life. Life is then held out in the gospel promised and revealed by farther steps, beginning at Genesis 3.15, driving to our Christ who has come and reigns at the right hand of God the Father 
Almighty. So that's the necessity of the gospel. I will close with some uh, concluding application. Normally I do application after each point, uh, but we're not going to do that tonight. I'll do some at the end. Uh, so that's the necessity. Let's then look at the revelation of the gospel in paragraph two, uh, paragraphs 2 and 3. And so we distinguish, and they distinguish very clearly here, between special and general revelation. What is general revelation? That's right. Where in the Bible does it talk about that? Romans 1. And Romans 2 talks about natural law as well. So general revelation uh, is the fact that God has revealed himself as the creator, uh, as the providential provider, uh, his goodness, his wisdom. All those things are mentioned in paragraph 1 of chapter 1 of the Confession. Looking back at that, the light of nature, that's the law written on the heart. That's from Genesis chapter 2. That is general revelation. It gives man no excuse before God. We're going to see that more in paragraph 2. What special revelation? God's word. It's his special revealing redemptively the salvation of sinners and all that that entails, including the fact that he is the triune God. We can't get that he is triune from general revelation we get that he is triune from special revelation. So we need the word of God for salvation. General revelation does what it's supposed to do. It is infallible in the sense that it does what it's supposed to do. Man just misinterprets it. And just like man misinterprets special revelation as well. So the main thing is the word of God. We see that in paragraph two. The promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the word of God. And so when we consider the gospel, it's a good for us to be reminded about what it is. What is the gospel? The good news. The good news. Great. The good news about what? The redemption of In who? Jesus. In Jesus. That's right. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. It is, it is about someone. And so if you need a good definition, I think 1 Corinthians 15 is very helpful. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. Memorize it if you haven't already. It's good for us to know what the gospel is. I tell my daughter, it's Jesus lived. I tell both my kids, but it's Jesus lived, died, and rose again. That's what it is. It's what Jesus has done. And so we see that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 3 through 5, but let's start in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. So we see his dying, we see his burial, we see his resurrection. And certainly we can say that he lived. He lived, died, and rose again. It's important for us to know that, know what the gospel is, that Jesus lived, died, and rose 
Again, I surmise a lot of Christians could not define that or know what the gospel is, which is a travesty because we, it is the good news about Jesus and what he has done. So it is revealed by way, the promise of Christ, this gospel is special revelation. It's the word of God. And then the divines go on to say in paragraph two, neither do the works of creation or providence with the light of nature make discovery of Christ or of grace by him so much as in a general or obscure way. So we believe in natural law. The law is written on the heart. There's debates going on even today that are against natural law. There are debates where people are concerned about natural law and they think that it means we're teaching uh, that man can save himself by way of natural theology. And we say no to that. The confession knows how to distinguish that God has written on the heart the Ten Commandments and that gives man no excuse before God most high. When we talk about natural law in a political setting, I'm not saying that it's salvific. I'm just talking about the justice that is uh, beneficial and useful that is based upon natural law that can then be applied into various laws in a country or in a society. So we're not saying that salvation is by natural law, which the Socinians were, which the Arminians were, which many people, the Pelagians, do teach. And so again, there's this growing Arminianism and growing Socinianism at the time that the confession is written. And the Arminians and Socinians basically say, you can have salvation by general revelation. You don't need the special revelation of the gospel. You don't need explicit faith in Christ. But if you live according to your culture, everything's just going to be fine. Whereas the Bible is very clear, it needs to be that proclamation, that special revelation. Certainly the book of Acts, we see that in action as the Great Commission is fulfilled in the book of Acts. And certainly John Owen deals with this in his biblical theology as he refutes uh, um, uh, the idea of using natural law as a way of salvation. And he highlights the necessity of revealed theology as salvific and Saving And so general revelation is unable. General revelation, revelation cannot make discovery of Christ or by the grace of, our, of grace by him. That is only special so much as even in a general or an obscure way. They go on to say much less that men destitute of the revelation of him by the promise or gospel should be enabled thereby to attain saving faith. Or repentance. So certainly, uh, if you want it, natural law and certainly general revelation come from uh, Romans chapter 1. That is very clear uh, where the, uh, they suppress the, the truth in unrighteousness. The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And then later on, Romans 10 talks about the importance and need for preaching. What's interesting is in Romans 10, 1, uh, Paul says his heart's desire is that Israel may be saved. 
His heart's desire is not that they may have a millennial kingdom. I just want to throw that in there. His heart's desire is that they may be saved. And so then he goes on to talk about salvation and what that looks like. And then we come to the important verses 14 through, or verses 14 through 17, but also verse 13, which is quoted in quoting Joel 2, 32, which we're going to see fairly soon. But uh, verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is that promise that we believe that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but we know that it is the elect who will be saved. So I have no problems as a preacher to say that if you believe on Christ, you shall be saved. I have no problem with John 3.16. Whoever believes on me shall not perish but have eternal life. I have no problem saying that because I have an understanding about the order of salvation in the life of the people of God, in the life of the elect. Those who are predestined, they will be regenerated. And those who are regenerated uh, shall have be given the gifts of faith and repentance, and they shall be justified, so on and so forth. But I really do believe that God will work in the hearts and lives of his people. And it comes by preaching. Verse 14. How, sh- how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they, there's a change to the preacher, how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the word of God must go forth, and it goes forth by men who have been sent. And so it is what God does, it is what God brings, it is his means And general revelation is not the means that he has set forth as the way of salvation. It is in Christ Jesus where there is salvation. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. So they need special revelation. They need the gospel proclaimed. And God is the, that's the means God uses. He does not use general revelation to save sinners, but special revelation. That he enables them to attain saving faith, chapter 14, and repentance, chapter 15, of our confession. Much less that men destitute of the revelation of him. That's why it needs to go forth. Destitute of the revelation of him by the promise or gospel. That's why it needs to go to the ends of the earth. So it's special. The gospel is special revelation. The promise of Christ is special revelation. But the advancement of it and the outworking that we see is by the sovereign will of God. This is paragraph three. And so it's a bit liberating and maybe depending on what you think can be a bit frustrating. But as we see, it is what God does. And so we see special revelation unto sinners the effectual working of it and the actual advancement of that special uh, word going forth is by God's sovereignty. The revelation of the gospel unto sinners made in diverse times and by sundry parts. Does anybody know where that is in the Bible? 
Hebrews 1, absolutely, where God at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers, but now in these last days speaks by his son. That's also where in the confession? Chapter 1. Chapter 1, paragraph 1. You see, we have the inscripturated word of God, but with respect to someone like Abraham, was it written down for him? Or no, God actually spoke to him. God, and it actually is the revealing and the word of God. Same with the prophets. As they're speaking, it is the word of God. For us, we have the written word of God, so we don't need prophecy anymore. We don't need uh, gifts of revelation. We don't need those things because we have the word of God. But diverse times and sundry parts just refers to God's redemptive historical unfolding and the re- revelation that is part of that. But all this is meant to highlight God's sovereignty made diverse times by sundry parts with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted. During the Old Testament times, it was only granted to whom? Israel. And we see this in Psalm 147, which is a proof text that the writers used. And when they have a proof text, they have the whole context in view, not just one verse. Same, same with res- also too when the New Testament writers quote the Old, they have the whole thing in mind, not just the one verse that's there. But Psalm 147, verse 20. He has not dealt with us, uh, dealt thus with any nation. As for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. And that's with respect to Israel. They were the special people of God and They did have the oracles, they did have those things, and it makes them further without excuse if they don't believe, which we see uh, in Romans chapter 9. But even too, when the gospel does go to other parts, it is because of the sovereignty of God. It is God's will to grant it in the unfolding. Yes, God has called uh, the church to preach the gospel, but also it is God's sovereignty uh, when those things, uh, when those good things are brought to other nations. And so even too in Acts 16, where the Spirit was leading, remember they were blocked from going other places in Acts chapter 16? And so it is God's sovereignty with respect to uh, where it goes. And so as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 11 For all the anti-Calvinists and anti-predestination people out there, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 11 prays, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. He thanks the Lord the Pharisees do not see it. And he thanks the Lord that babes have had it revealed because it is the sovereign will of God to reveal it. And so that's important to understand, even for us as we consider the advancement of it, as we consider what we can do to further advance it, we need to trust in God and trust that really he is the one who brings it about. And one thing we can consider historically and we can rejoice in is the Baptist Missionary Society. This will do just a brief little bit of history here for us. Again, there was the argument that the independents uh, were anti-missions or that they couldn't do missions because it only came through 
the, the Episcopal, uh, Episcopalian structure, the bishops, uh, could do it. And so the emphasis here is not so much on ecclesiology in paragraph 3, but it's based upon God's sovereignty. We, God has called us to advance it to the ends of the earth, and we must do it, but God is the one who will bring it about. It is God's sovereignty. And it's not as though there were no attempts prior to the Baptist Missionary Society, but it was the Baptist Missionary Society that put missions on the map. This is in 1792 when it was formed. This is William Carey and other men as well. Samuel Pierce, Robert Hall, John Sutcliffe, Andrew Fuller. I actually have a cousin named Andrew Fuller. I just want to point out it's not the same guy. Uh, totally different. Uh, but in any case, Andrew Fuller has got a big uh, set that's very helpful. Uh, but they really were the ones who put missions on the map. And it's not as though there were no attempts prior to these men. Calvin's Geneva uh, sent missionaries to Brazil. Dutch reformed to Brazil. That's why there's a lot of Dutch uh, in Brazil. Uh, but the Baptists were kind of the key figures who, who kind of really did put it on the map with all these men. Samuel Pierce, Robert Hall, the men I mentioned, and even William Carey. Now, what's interesting is, uh, just as a bit of an aside... Apparently, William Carey was a cobbler of unremarkable skills and apparently not a great preacher. Uh, and as well, his wife did not want to go. <laughs> and so hindsight is always twenty twenty. He just felt he applied the passage where Jesus says, you must give up father and mother. And, and he applied that to his wife. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And we would probably go, if your wife's not wanting you to go to India, you probably shouldn't go. Because uh, you have your obligation to your wife, but you know God is God is good and God is gracious. Uh, he was just fascinated by travel literature. He had hoped to be an evangelist. He really wanted to go, um, and so uh, he eventually uh, uh, does uh, go, and he really does take the lead to form this society because there was some reluctance, and he says to. Uh, Andrew Fuller really took the lead from this, and Kerry really asked Fuller, he said, is there, is there nothing to be done? So, I mean, he did have this heart for the heathen. He had this heart for other parts of the world, which was great. But again, some of the practical things, I don't know that uh, we would have endorsed today, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, God did do uh, wonderful things through him. And thanks be to God for the Baptist Missionary Society that was formed in 1790. Two. And so Fuller was the secretary. Samuel Pierce really wanted to go to other parts out of England. Uh, this is all in England, by the way. Uh, wanted to go out of England to other parts of the world, but he got, he was hurt, or he got sick and health concerns prevented him. And so it really was Carrie who did it. Uh, and the Lord was pleased to bless them. Uh, you know, the particular Baptist churches tripled in size within five years. Uh, the 92s, uh, Dr. Renahan points out, seems to be interesting eras of ebb and flow when it comes to the Baptists. So things do go pretty well during all the persecution up to 1692. And then theology goes down the drain and things don't go so well. And then 1792 uh, with, uh, with the Baptist Missionary Society, uh, kind of a, a renaissance, I guess, for the Baptists. And then Spurgeon dies in 1892, and the Baptists go downhill again. I don't know what happened in 1992, but hopefully there's a, <laughs> there's a trend going up uh, 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 now. But, but they did a lot of work, 1812, Sri Lanka, 1814, Jamaica, 
1845, Africa, uh, 1856, India, 1870, China. So they did do a lot of work and they really did take, you know, what we see in chapter 20 and apply it uh, uh, through by way of this society. And, you know, the awareness by the church, the awareness by the men in England, the evangelism that happened there. Uh, God was pleased to bless that. So uh, historically, that's what God used to bring the gospel uh, to these other parts of the world. So uh, it is God's sovereignty. That, that is the main point of paragraph three. The rest of the paragraph highlights that not being annexed by virtue of any promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities by virtue of common light received without it which none ever did make or can do so, and therefore in all ages the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent or straightening of it in great variety according to the counsel and will of God. Why is it some nations haven't had it? It's the will of God. Why is it that some nations have? It is the will of God. What are we called to do? What God has called us to do, which is preach Christ and, you know, call sinners to repentance. And God is pleased to use those means. And God is pleased to open and shut doors with respect to domestic missions, but also to the advancement uh, in other parts of the world as well. So that's the revelation uh, of the gospel, let's then look thirdly at the supernatural character of the gospel in paragraph four. So this is again back to that distinction between the outward means, the external call, and also the internal working. And so we see the external means for paragraph four. Although the gospel being the only outward means, the gospel being the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace. The gospel being the only outward means. We don't show the gospel with our works. We live in light of the gospel. Titus 2.14 says, when the, with respect to the bondservant who doesn't pilfer, doesn't talk back, uh, someone who should work hard, they can adorn the profession of the gospel. But the gospel is Christ living, dying, and rising again. And we believe that to be true. It is something to be proclaimed and the life we live can then be the platform to share that. We can build credibility with the tax collector and the sinner by sitting with them. And that can then be the platform by which we share the gospel. Jesus sat with the riffraff. Jesus sat with the tax collectors and sinners. And that then opened the door uh, for him to then share the gospel with others. So... Uh, but the point is, the means of revealing is, you're a wretch, you need Jesus. I mean, you're a sinner, here is a Savior. That's what the gospel, the gospel is what Christ has done. It's the only sufficient outward means. And when it comes to missions, missions really needs to focus on the gospel. That's what it needs to be. I'm not necessarily against humanitarian aid, but I remember going on missions trips in the past and those lines were blurred. Now that I'm necessarily against uh, short-term missions trips, I do think they're a little bit overrated, sorry, but depending on what you're doing and what's happening, I'm just going to be honest that way. I think some of them can be done very well. I think sometimes it becomes poverty tourism 
if you just ask me because you spend a lot of money, you go to a poor part of the world, and sometimes the people don't know what to do with you. I'm serious. Sometimes the people in other parts of the world don't know what to do with everybody that's over there. Uh, they have you paint the same thing a bunch of times because you know, they, one group comes, they paint the wall. Another group comes another, a week later, they paint the same wall because they don't know what to do with everybody. I remember in Jamaica, the guy said to us, we would do it faster if you weren't here. We were building a retaining wall. And we had all these girls, I've told you this before, right? All the, girl, all the girls were standing, were passing cement. And the, I'm sorry, girls are not as strong as men. So, they, <clears throat> so the, you know, they can't do it very well, so you only put a little bit in. The guy's like, yeah, I'd carry two down, and it would be real quick. And so I remember thinking, what are we doing here then? Like, what's the point? So there, I, I think there is a place, but we have to be very, very careful. But missions really is gospel. Missions really is church planting. Church planting here and church planting in other parts of the world. The calling of a missionary, should we vet one, would follow the same protocol if we're calling a pastor. Because they must be a pastor. We want them to be a pastor uh, in another part of the world. And there are differing views on, you know... Do you send someone to equip locals? You know, all that sort of stuff. That's definitely a lot of things to think about. But the main thing is, missions is the gospel. It is the outward means uh, that is sufficiently abundant. We don't need puppets, ponies, and programs. We don't need a million things. It is the gospel. But we also need the Holy Spirit to work. We need the internal working of the Spirit. How can natural man discern the spiritual things? Well, the Holy Spirit must work in their hearts and lives to make them spiritually changed. And so we see a lot of reverencing back to effectual calling uh, at the end of paragraph four here, I guess in the middle to the end. Yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened or regenerated. There is moreover necessary and effectual, insuperable, a, a supernatural Work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Psalm 110.3, God makes them willing in the day of his power. We don't make people willing in the day of our power. We can plead. We can, we can argue. We can, give, uh, we can give our thoughts. But only God can really do that. We can say, here's the gospel. Here's a, you're a wretch. Here's Christ. Here's what he has done. Uh, it makes sense that... God, uh, God is infinite, so we need an infinite sacrifice, but only the Spirit can work in them. And a super work, a superable work of the Holy Spirit upon the soul for the producing in them a new spiritual life. 1 Corinthians 2, certainly John 6, 44, says that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. No one comes to me Unless the Father draws him. And all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will raise them up on the last day. Without which, no other means will affect their conversion unto God. The Spirit working with the Word. The Spirit working with the Gospel. That is the means by which God saves sinners. And Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the last proof text there in verses 4 through 6. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, 
lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's the uh, external word, and there's the internal working by the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. And it might not have all the shine that some of the Pentecostal churches have, and all the gifts that they do, and all the healings that are supposedly happening, but we really do believe that the Spirit works. We really do believe that the Spirit changes hearts. We really do believe the Spirit works in the hearts of God's people to make them more Christ-like. He gives that new life that has been implanted, and thankfully he gives us the gift of that life act, which is faith in Jesus Christ. So those are the three, necessity, revelation, and supernatural character. We'll just close with some concluding application. Obviously, this teaches us the need for missions, uh, but the three lines of application will follow what we can all do. What individuals can do, what churches and only certain men can do, and then lastly, what God can do. So what can individuals do uh, with respect to the promotion and the advancement of the gospel? Well, join a faithful church and attend the preaching of the Word of God. Join a church and be faithful there. Young converts who want to go out and share the gospel with everybody on the street, if they want to share it with their friends, I want them to be ready to give an answer. But I don't know that street preaching is something for a new convert. I mean, Paul does say that preachers should not be novices in 1 Timothy 3. The best thing for young guys is to come and be in church and sit under the preaching. Be part of a faithful church. Learn Grow, be equipped. So join a faithful church and attend the preached word. Secondly, pray for the salvation of souls. It's funny, people want to street preach, but they don't want to come at 9.30 to pray. People want to street preach, but they don't want to get up in the morning and pray. You see, brethren, we need to pray. We need to pray for the salvation of souls. We need to pray for the advancement of the kingdom. We need to pray uh, that sinners would be saved. Again, people are happy to do missions and go across the world, which again, I'm not necessarily against, but they don't want to pray weekly. They don't want to have self-control to get up in the morning, self-control to get up on Sunday morning, and to pray. Why is it that prayer meeting is the lowest attended uh, meeting of any church? Like, it's not just our church, it's any church. Why is that? probably because there's something important about prayer. Certainly individually, we ought to do that, but also for uh, the church as, uh, as well. Thirdly, under what individuals can do, give to the church. I mean, God does call us to give, but the giving hopefully helps the pastor. I hate talking that way, but, you know, First Timothy 5. But also for the advancement of the kingdom. I mean, we can't live on love and fresh air, Missionaries can't live on love and fresh air. And if we want to be able to help missionaries and help other churches, we need to have money. That's why I'm thankful for the generosity of the people in our church so that we can help others. So giving to the church. Notice how this is all very simple, right? Join, pray, give. I think it's what? 
stay, pray, pay. I don't know if you want to think of it that way. Uh, but those three things. And the fourth thing is sit with tax collectors and sinners and be ready to give an answer. Is, you know, th- that's important as well. You know, making friends is hard. I-, I understand that. That's a difficult thing to do. But it's okay to have non-Christian friends as well. Friends that we love, friends that we care for, and friends that we can then open up an opportunity, that God would open up an opportunity to be like, I've been thinking of you, please read this. Albert Martin's got a good little section on personal evangelism. He talks about this very thing, this establishing that credibility. And I think there's something to that. And so sitting with them, just as our Lord does, and then being ready to give an answer when opportunities arise. That is something everybody can do. Everybody can do those four things. So that's what individuals can do. What about churches? What can churches and what can only certain men do? Well, churches preach the word, right? This is again, there's going to be some overlap, but it's all going to be very simple. Churches preach the word to edify and equip the congregation. To equip the congregation for life, that is the main thing, right? So that people are not carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians 4 then leads to into 5 and then into 6, talking about the lives we live. So that we're not carried about. That's why, again, not novices, but that God's people might be equipped. That the church might do what she's supposed to do by preaching the word. We see the advancement of the Great Commission in the book of Acts. What are they doing? They're preaching the word. The church is advancing. Men set apart are doing that. So the church needs to preach the word. Secondly, pray for churches and missionaries. Again, see a pattern? (laughs) Praying. We need to pray for churches and missionaries. That's what the church ought to do. Third, the church ought to give to missionary causes. And when I say missionary causes, ones that are near and dear to our hearts with the purpose of advancing the kingdom. That's another purpose for association, by the way, is so that we can share in the advancement of the kingdom. So give to missionary causes. And then fourthly, raise up men to plant churches. Certainly we want to raise up men to stay in churches, but we want to raise up men to plant churches, both foreign and domestic. Again, the purpose of the Great Commission, I think, is primarily in light of this type of context. Who is it that teaches? Who is it that baptizes? It's the church of Christ. And so that's why church planting is important. That's why church planting is missions, whether it's foreign or whether it is domestic. So preach, pray, give, pray that God would raise up men as well. And then thirdly and finally, what God can do. Because let's be honest, none of this is going to happen unless God brings it about. And there's two things that we can close with. The first is, trust the means God has provided. Most of the time we don't want to do that, right? God has given his word. We need to trust that. It sounds weird. It is foolishness. It's a stumbling block. But it is God's means. It is, here is the gospel. It is Christ living, dying, and rising again. That is what God has said. And we need to trust his means. We need to trust his means for our growth. We need to trust his means that he will really save sinners by way of the proclamation of the word. And then lastly, as much as I don't agree with some of the things with William Carey's life, in many ways he's correct when he says we need to expect great things. 
We need to trust that God will do great things because he said he will. He says that he will aid. He says that he will help. He says that he will nourish. He t- Paul tells the elders at Ephesus, commit yourselves to the word of God, commit your flock to the word of God, and that is what God's people must do. What is Timothy's last, or the last command he receives? Preach the word, because that has vital and important uh, uh, ramifications for the end, for the judgment. Because in chapter 4, paragraph, or paragraph 1, verse 1, in 2 Timothy, he's talking about uh, preach the word in light of the fact that Christ is going to come back. You see, preaching the word has end time ramifications because it is the means by which the elect are called forth. God really will save. God really can save. God really does save. And we need to trust him with the means that he's given for the advancement of the gospel and of the extent of the grace thereof. So don't let anybody say that Calvinists are anti-missions. Let us pray. Our good God, we are thankful for uh, your advancement. We are thankful for your word that goes forth. So often, O oh Lord, we can uh, forget the simple means of grace. We can forget uh, the, the simple gospel. We can forget uh, the blessedness that Christ lived, died, and rose again in the presentation of it. But help us to trust in that. Help us to be faithful. Uh, even when we are pulled different ways, even when people want different things, help us to not be afraid. And we pray that you give us opportunities uh, as they arise in our life. Help us to be ready to give an answer. We pray that our church would be faithful to preach the word and that we would uh, uh, help uh, others who are in need. Thank you that we have been able to help others who are in need. And we are uh, thankful uh, for the blessed, uh, blessedness it is to pray to you and ask that you will do uh, great things. And we do desire that many sinners would be saved uh, in this part of the world. We do desire for the advancement of it in this part of the world. Thank you for the encouraging things with Whatcom. Uh, we do pray, though, in your future, in the future as well, that uh, it would extend even further into Vancouver, that the salvation would come to many. And we even pray for other parts of the world as well. And so we pray that you would raise up men to stay here and to send out. Uh, we pray that we would be faithful what you've called us to do here and Uh, trust in you and trust in your ways, trust in your means and trust that uh, you will do great things. So thank you for all the great things you have done and please help us as we ought to be a church that follows the Great Commission. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.